Welcome to BioIT World's Trends from the Trenches podcast, your insider's look at the science, technology, and executive trends driving the life sciences. I'm Allison Prophet, editor of BioIT World. This episode is hosted by Stan Gloss, founder of BioTeam, a life sciences IT consulting company at the intersection of science, data, and technology. Joining Stan today is Bryn Roberts of Roche Information Solutions. Together, they discuss the motivation behind AI enthusiasm and what outcomes Roche hopes to see from AI and ML investment. Let's listen in. Hey, good afternoon, Bryn. It's so nice to be with you in this beautiful day of August and that beautiful background that you have. Uh, I'd love to be hiking in those mountains. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, lovely to see you again. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm dialing in from Switzerland and it's uh, 35 degrees Celsius, bright sunshine. And as you say, wonderful mountain view. That's fantastic. Well, this is a continuation of our, our previous podcast that we did a couple months ago. Towards the end of that podcast, you said, well, maybe next time we should talk about AI and machine learning. And now it's next time. So today, we're gonna, I'd love to explore a little bit about AI and machine learning. And what I'd like to do is guide it through basically three questions. Um, why is Roche and why are you interested in pursuing in that? How is Roche doing it? And then what what results or what outcomes are you hoping to see from these kinds of efforts? And I want to start with why, because I see in the marketplace many different organizations get enthralled with technologies, whether it's cloud or data lakes or even AI. And they're all getting into, immediately getting into the what and never really understanding the why. So uh, that's where I'd like to start today, and I'll let you go at it. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, wonderful place to start, and, and perfect, absolutely. I mean, ultimately, I guess for all of us working in the sort of healthcare life science space, you know, we're trying to improve the well-being of humankind. So immediately coming to mind would be patients, people who are kind of in the healthcare system, and uh, struggling with their diseases, struggling with the costs and the burden of getting access to and paying for and experiencing healthcare. And then on the other side, there's the actual healthcare systems themselves, the providers, be they private or governmental, which are really creaking under the rising costs, um, burnout of staff, aging population challenges, and, and many other factors. So we have a huge unmet need out there um, in healthcare. And that's before we even think about the true aspiration for all of us, which is to think more about well care. So, you know, mm. trying to stay in that well state, um, as we were talking about earlier, rather than becoming patients. So early identification of risk factors, uh, you know, really preemptive or prophylactic kind of interventions that will prevent us from becoming sick or as sick. And so that's really why, that's the why we're here. Uh, why I'm here doing my uh, my work as well. And for a company like Roche, and I'm sure this is true of many similar um, healthcare life science companies, you know, our big picture, we say to do now what patients need next. And we've had a lot of discussions over recent years, you know, how do we bring more and better solutions to patients, to healthcare systems, 
at a substantially lower cost. And that can be a monetary cost, uh, but there are other costs as well involved, things like access and uh, convenience and these types of things. So that's the why, I think, the big picture. And I have not mentioned technology or AI once, uh, but it's a great place to start. So what about the why in your role at Roche? What's your- yeah, so so my role being in um, in the area of data analytics for our sort of health, digital healthcare business, our insights business, um, it's really part of that bigger picture. So we're trying to bring solutions to healthcare systems, to healthcare providers, to diagnostic labs, even uh, to direct to patients that will alleviate in some way the costs of the healthcare system or will bring benefits. And for me, the ultimate benefit is a better outcome for a patient. You know, And I think that the whole system is pushing towards that. And as I mentioned, the ideal would be even preventing someone from becoming a patient. But you also serve internal clients as well. They have a, they have we a do. why that's, as well. That's true, exactly. So we um, we provide services and, and data and systems and tools to a lot of different um, scientists and technologists, um, product developers, and so on across the company. And you know, in, in, from an internal perspective, I think about it in perhaps a sort of a continuum between the understanding and decision making. So really providing data and analytic tools to help people to understand, for example, mechanisms of disease, you know, the way that healthcare system work, systems work, the way patients experience care, and then being able to make appropriate decisions in the products we build, the services we provide, um, and ultimately progress you know, towards that, that vision that we discussed. Yeah, it's interesting because when I hear that... Um this product mindset that you're talking about because you're really thinking about the stakeholders and the needs of the stakeholders and then understanding that deeply, how do we then deliver that, right? Uh, absolutely, 100%. And we we talk a lot, or we've talked a lot over many years in the pharma side of the business about target product profiles. So really understanding, you know, who is this drug for? What benefit is it going to bring? How will it be delivered and experienced? What kind of side effects must we avoid for that particular patient population? Routes of administration, all of these things that give us a picture of what we're building towards, what we're inventing and and developing. And actually, that applies to almost everything we do internally and externally in the digital space as well. You know, in the end, we're producing a product that could be um, a, a, a physical product, you know, a diagnostic device. It could be really a software as a device, a product, a software, or it could be a service, which, you know, maybe services are slightly different Mm -hmm. to products. But uh, we also talk about solutions, which could be any combination of products and services. And I think target product profile applies there as well. And as we perhaps talk a bit more about AI, I think we, we have to start with the target product profile. What are we trying to achieve with this analytic approach? And um, many of the ways we might develop train, tune, monitor, um, uh, and manage those AIs or machine learning models um, will depend on that target product profile definition and the so, needs. Sorry, I'm sorry, Stan, interrupting you there, but the really thinking about customer centricity and whether that customer is a physician, is a patient, or is an internal scientist really focused on their needs and the benefits they're going to receive. So when you're focusing on the, the flow of... Um data 
to feed AI? Are you thinking of data as a product that feeds AI, the AI work that you do as, as part of a continuum of managing your products, your, your data as a product such that it feeds into AI and machine learning work? Exactly, indeed, we are. And it's a, I would say it's a merging area. So we're actually just in the process of uh, productizing quite a number of data domains. Um, so one could, for example, in the diagnostic space, look at uh, instrument data, either technical in, uh, data from the instruments or even the results that the instruments develop. And we want to productize those to make them much easier to consume, to integrate, um, back to what we discussed in the last podcast, to really apply the FAIR data principles. Um, and that's best done, or at least one effective way to do that is through a product mindset with data product creation. Yeah, we actually got in a podcast that I did previously with Chris Gibson of uh, Recursion Pharmaceutical. We got, mm -hmm. we, we really, they've leveraged that product mindset into feeding their phenomics platform and being able to, you know, purpose-built data sets that there's a, somebody had a, the end customer had a specification for the data the data has to look and feel and look like this to be able to run in the in the ai algorithms so everything is backed up all the way so maybe that's a good transition to talk about yeah absolutely how how will you guys one how how did you queue it up how, uh, what are you doing these days in terms of the how yeah, it's a brilliant time because, as you know, since we spoke some months ago, so we're August 2023 now, and over the past six to 12 months, there's been this huge explosion of, particularly in the generative AI space with the large language models, uh, creating such a storm. And um, so I would say really things are changing at, across the corporation, and I'm sure that's true in many areas. In fact, I see it in many of uh, my peers in, in different companies which is, you know, for a long time, we were a kind of this, you know, little backwater, um, these guys doing kind of cool things with data and analytics, but um, happily kind of left a little bit uh, in the background. And now it's, you know, it's main stage, you know, the CEO, the, the corporate executives, various executive teams through our businesses are asking, you know, suddenly, what can we do with generative AI or, you know, with AI generally? And uh, so it's actually giving us new opportunities. And uh, also new challenges because, you know, there's a lot of hype, a lot of perhaps false expectations or expectations that are very difficult and expensive to realize. And so people need to un understand that. Um, but the whole journey with machine learning and AI for us started yeah, decades ago, of course, and typically in very um, specialized domains. So perhaps looking at things like imaging data for digital pathology, uh, looking at um, uh, oncology studies, perhaps, so clinical trials where we've taken a tumor biopsy and trying to understand what's going on in the biology of that tumor in terms of the obviously the tumor cells, but also interaction with with it, with the environment. So you know, uh, immune immune cells, blood vessels, and so on. So really, quite specialized tasks and um, things like you know um, convolutional neural networks. You know, were very well adapted for image analysis, as we know. So. I think we're moving, we've moved through a number of those specialized use cases. And we've seen those grow into things like um, time series data. So looking at things like digital biomarkers from patients, where we're monitoring how they perform in a clinical trial, 
you know, how their movements perhaps are being um, improved in Parkinson's disease by by treatments, that kind of thing. And then maybe looking in that case more at um, kind of recurrent neural networks with, you know, with, with memory layers that allow us to process time series data. And now, you know, moving beyond those really specialized use cases, this Gen AI push is really, the question is, can we take all of kind of the knowledge, as it were, of, of course, the public domain and all the internal knowledge of a company like ourselves and create some, you know, really amazing foundational models or perhaps fine tune existing foundational models to answer a whole range of very general questions mm. um, and even potentially do some tasks even better than some of the, the specialized models of the past. So I'm so glad that you're talking about generative AI because I do actually have a few uh, you know, questions about where it fits in in our, in our workforce and the impact of generative AI now Many predictions say that uh, a certain percentage of jobs are going to be lost in uh, because of generative AI. How do you view that? Do you see it as a potential threat to some of your data scientists, or is it just something that's going to make you even ridiculously more efficient? So how do you view that? It's a really great question. And... Um... I think the truth is it is going to change the nature of work and a number of roles and activities of roles. That's absolutely for sure. Um, so if we take the example of a data scientist or even just a, a general software developer, it's pretty clear now that um, at the very least, leveraging sort of large language models can be a, an amazing tool, you know, using the likes of a co-pilot or something like that to support with coding, um, but also with testing. Um, so um, automating uh, code annotation, these kind of things, perhaps even um, looking at, at uh, historical sort of monolithic code bases and sort of factorizing those or breaking them down into microservices. So I don't think that uh, does away with the need for great software developers or data scientists, but it uh, it has the potential to make them ridiculous, ridiculously more productive, as I think you, you put it. Um, but the nature of the work will change slightly and what we value may may over time change. So if we realize these tools actually are exceptional at coding, then our data scientists and software developers can focus on different aspects of product development where perhaps um, uh, we've been lacking in the past in terms of uh, resources. So the good news for us is we're, you know, we have so many more product ideas than we can resource. Um, so I don't think we're going to see significant redundancies in, in our space of sort of data analytics in any time soon. And, and other areas, of course, from other industries, people have talked about the creative arts, you know, marketing, um, perhaps uh, paralegals, you know, uh, communication specialists. And again, I suspect this is just going to be a tool, as many things have been in the past with technical innovation that they can use to make themselves more productive. Yeah, I kind of think of uh, ChatGPT as uh, back in the day when I we went we transferred from using slide rulers over to calculators. We have that same switchover right now. People saying, "Oh, that's cheating," and now you're not doing this and all of that. Um, I've been playing around with it myself, and I think what it's um, I was it's done and I've seen is it's a way of democratizing access to. I can't write code, 
but I was on a seminar from a chief digital officer, and they said the number one programming language now is evolving into English. Mm-hmm. So uh, this ability for somebody like me, I just recently did a post in Medium on using ChatGPT as a Socratic teacher. So I was mm-hmm. able to work with somebody and put together a prompt that, you know, basically you can ask it anything and it will start firing away questions at you and work with you to, you know, learn any topic that you want. So, you know, it's a little scary um, when I start getting involved in technology. Ask anybody who knows me. I'm not the most technologically <laughs> advanced person on the planet. But, uh, but you know how to use it. I mean, that's the key. You know, I just think about what we're, what we're trying to achieve with uh, sort of digital health in, in, in our space. And, you know, the amount of time it takes us to to bring a product to the market, particularly if it's something that has uh, regulatory impact. So software as a medical device, perhaps for clinical decision support or um, automation of clinical workflows or something like that, that really needs to be um, very robust. Clearly, there's a lot of uh, additional work required, even if you use um, uh, generative AI as part of your augmented um, development process. But imagine then the, the, the ability to scale, for example, into different languages to adapt perhaps models into new disease indications or for new populations. So I can really see potential of, of leveraging AI for scaling products. You know, So that would be another area where, again, we can bring back to the vision or the the mission that we discussed earlier, bringing significantly more products and better products at, at, at dramatically reduced reduced cost. And that's another area where these, I think, um, generative AI approaches could be very helpful for us. Stan and Bren will take the plenary stage at BioIT World Europe this November in London. We'd love to have you be part of the conversation. First, what questions would you like to see Bryn answer? What topics would you like the two to discuss? Use the link in our show notes to submit your questions. And then make plans to join us in London. You can use code TFT10 for 10% off your registration. Yeah, um, in my upcoming episode with uh, Jean Caron from Bayer, we talked about the role of this with digital twins. And it was it was really interesting her comment to me. She didn't want to go down the path of digital twins. She says there's so much that AI and machine learning could do, and there's so much low hanging fruit that you really you know, and things that we could do to make a patient's life better. That that Absolutely. digital twins will happen in time, but it's not our focus. We're focused on the patient. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if, in a way, and I, I know this is bending the definition a little bit of a digital twin, but if you take a, you know, a very deep and high dimensional data set from either biological experiments or from clinical um, use cases, and you build a model from that, in a sense, you're creating a digital twin of whatever it is you're modeling. So that could be, for example, the way the heart behaves under certain conditions. It could be the way a certain uh, group of patients behave uh, under mm-hmm. treatment or, or moving through the healthcare system. So actually, by even just by building models using um, any or potentially multiple types of, uh, of modeling technology, including uh, large language modeling, um, you are in a sense creating a part of a digital mm-hmm. twin or a kind of digital twin. But this idea of building a, um, a digital twin of a whole entity 
and you know we know it well from the buildings you know where we i think that's a rather easier task although still challenging but to build a virtual human kind of uh it is very challenging and in the end your representation of that reality is only as good as the data that you're building the model from and um usually that's uh, either incomplete it's it's not got enough um representation of the complexity of biology or human behavior in it to to really make a, a highly usable twin but there is another use for um an approach that's a little bit like digital digital twins and that's to take data sets that have a privacy sensitivity and to create a synthetic um representation of those data so all of the dimensionality mm of the data are captured, but all of the elements of the original that could potentially have privacy implications can be removed. Mm. So it's a it's a form of privacy-preserving technology, not dissimilar. Maybe we use anonymization, pseudonymization, or a redaction in the past, but to create an entirely synthetic twin um, of a data set also is, uh, is a potential use for privacy preservation. Well, that's fantastic. Um, hadn't thought about it that way, but I really appreciate that perspective on the, you know, that we do have, the t models are basically twins, if you yeah. think about it for a second. So I want to pivot over uh, over to what? So what what is Roche doing with AI and machine learning? And what results or outcomes have you seen from the efforts that you're putting in? Yeah, I should say, you know, in a sense, where I think those of us in the business are, are very aware we're at the beginning of a very exciting journey. So in a sense, what we've done and what we're doing is just a fraction of what we we imagine and hope to do in the in the coming years. Um, I mentioned a few use cases, but maybe I step back and look think about early research. You know, one of the um, most important aspects of doing a new drug program, for example, is really understanding the biology of um, of the disease and of the target potential drug targets that you're likely to uh, to uh, pursue um, with with a new medicine, and so for a long time we've been using things like natural language processing and the different forms of advanced analytics to to help scientists to grapple with very large uh, data sets, information sources like the published literature, uh, big uh, historical banks of experimental data, clinical trial data, and so on. And when I think about like the you know the classic four types of analytics, so you know you've got the kind of descriptive approaches, which is just you know essentially dashboarding, search and query, sort of understanding what mm -hmm. is there in the data, and then more diagnostic. So that question of why, so I observe something is happening in this biological system, why is that happening, and trying to get some degree of explanation, mechanistic or otherwise, of what's happening, and then predictive. Um, so looking at, since that's happening, what might happen if I make this intervention or that intervention? And then finally, uh, prescriptive. So thinking about recommendations of what should be done in the future. So descriptive, diagnostic, predictive, and prescriptive. And I think all of those um, approaches we've, we've used at, uh, at various times. And now as I think about applying that into the healthcare setting, you immediately see, um, see see the applications. So you can imagine descriptive, you know, helping a physician just to to bring together and grapple with the data around us, perhaps an individual patient or a group of patients, um, reporting, dashboarding, presenting the right data at the right time, diagnostic, 
what is happening with my patient, looking at imaging, looking at genetics, looking at clinical data, at, at bloods, at chemistry, and so on. Predictive, what's likely to happen to my patient, you know, if I do nothing. And then perhaps prescriptive, you know, what would the, the model, what would be the AI recommendation of what we should do with patients like this? And uh, that links us into things like the clinical guidelines. So in, in many, in most indications in most countries, there is an established um, set of clinical guidelines so that physicians can be guided on the, the knowledge of, you know, that's been gathered uh, across the discipline um, and, and refined over time. So, and also updated when new treatments become available um, or new discoveries are made. So if I have a patient with a certain type of cancer at a certain stage, perhaps with certain uh, comorbidities or risk factors, I can look them up in the guidelines and see, okay, the next best step for my patient would be to order this diagnostic test. And then based on the, on the result of that, perhaps uh, apply certain types of treatment. Um, but you can imagine for a physician where some of these guidelines are hundreds of pages, they're changing constantly with new discoveries and innovation. It's very difficult to keep on top. And that's where a, an AI model um, that really is uh, ingesting these regularly and keeping up to date can make great uh, a great companion for that physician in augmenting decision-making, making sure they don't miss things, um, maybe testing, you know, confirming or challenging their decisions and just saying, you know, yes, you're proposing this. Have you thought about this? You know why not that you know these kind of um, these kind of interactions so more like a virtual healthcare assistant or a decision support tool so that's interesting you use the word augment because realistically a lot of what we think of as artificial intelligence is really augmented intelligence in in terms of use absolutely right? yeah when it's applied in most settings it's going to involve a human somewhere in the loop, you know, so there's a, this, this relationship between the AI, the artificial part of the intelligence, as it were, and the, the human part of the process. Uh, and therefore I always, I often refer to it as AI as augmented intelligence in, as, as you say, in our application, Exactly. Um, if, if not in the technology itself. So back to the, what, what tangible results or outcomes of your efforts could you share with us today? Yeah, so I think um, back to the understanding of, of disease and disease progression, I think, you know, particularly in the area of imaging, um, in areas like digital pathology, in retinal imaging, you know, uh, that's an area where Roche has been investing a lot and actually bringing some very interesting uh, new options for patients with retinal diseases uh, in recent years. Um, and we've applied AI models. Um, I, almost hate to say the word AI, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, really deep learning models, machine and deep learning models to uh, the retinal images and being able to um, answer questions like, um, what is the probability of this patient progressing with the condition and losing visual acuity to a certain level within a certain time frame? Even to the point looking at mechanism, what is the likelihood that this patient responds to a certain mechanism of treatment? Um, or not, um, like anti anti VGF uh, and so on, and um, so that that's been very powerful in guiding our sort of uh, clinical work and and some of the work. 
Now, what we'd love to do is bring those types of models, of course, to clinical practice, which is a whole other barrier. I mentioned digital biomarkers. So using really deep learning models to classify the activities that patients are performing, climbing the stairs, walking, turning, and, um, and understanding how well they're performing those tasks in the presence or absence of experimental therapies, for example, mm-hmm. uh, in, neuro- in neurological conditions as, a, as, a, as, a, as an example there. Again, they've brought us great value and insight in the in the conduct of clinical trials and really helping us to progress new medicines. But we'd love to bring those to clinical practice. And that's actually something we're working on right now mm-hmm. with, with my team, is leveraging the work of my former team in the pharma R&D world and now really looking to bring those solutions to the clinical care setting and to actually to other uh, pharmaceutical and life science companies. So to the, all of that work we've invested in and uh, the patients actually have invested in with us on clinical trials, we want to make that available to other pharma companies to help progress um, uh, their development activities as well. Wow, that's amazing. So my, I guess my final question because uh, we're running out of time, uh, mm-hmm. is what what lessons learned? What were the things that you could share with our audience around getting going and getting value from AI and machine learning efforts? Yeah, great, great question. I, I think maybe the first one to start with it, it it's it's all in the data. So no matter what approach you're using to to model. Um, whether you're using sort of more symbolic machine learning where you've defined features or you've understood the features, full deep learning models, right through to sort of um, attention-based transformers like large language models, it's all about the data. So Mm -hmm. the model can only learn what's there. So high quality, high volumes of high quality, well-curated data are absolutely key. And of course, we know that uh, in every data set, there are biases there are confounding factors about caused by the way the data were either collected or produced in some way in the beginning. And those need to be understood and, and let's say, accounted for in the modeling and in the application of the models. So really understanding the limitations of the models or understanding the limitations of the data and therefore what's inherent uh, in, in, carried into the model. Um, so it's all in the data. I think the other, the other biggie is to think about back to the TPP, what exactly are we designing this thing to do? And that will inform us in the way we train, the way we tune the model. So for example, is this a model that is signal seeking? So it's really looking to find a signal in maybe a more discovery oriented setting? Or is this, uh, and therefore we can, we we will tolerate quite a lot of false positives. Mm -hmm. Or is it a model rather that we're looking for much more stringency for example, in a clinical setting where you're saying, you know, this needs to be, you know, really, uh, uh, the predictive value needs to be very high. And mm-hmm. we, for whatever reason in the model, we, we, you know, we can or can't tolerate more or less false positives or negatives. So really understanding the application um, and the biases, as I said, in the model, and then to minimize the, the, the risks and the impact of those appropriately. Um, so that would just be a few thoughts. There's so many mm-hmm. more. Maybe that's the topic for the next one is trustworthy AI, where we can think more about the uh, applications, the ethics, um, and the implications of applying AI in different systems and, and what that means for the uh, patients, perhaps, or other subjects that uh, that may be living in that system. So again, Bryn, you're amazing. 
segue. Um, you and I are going to actually be at BioIT World Europe in London in November, where we're going to do a fireside chat, which is a live version of this podcast. So I'm going to absolutely bring that topic to the floor, and we will we will continue the conversation. Bryn, thank you so much for this great edition on AI and really appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Really looking forward to seeing you in London. Take care. Take care. Cheers. Thank you for listening to BioIT World's Trends from the Trenches podcast. 